he really got me. You know, I think it's because he was gay. Got the nuances more. get me a gay mickey gotta get a gay well hello and welcome to another episode of in the details a celebration of nuance where each episode i clean out on all the acting choices micro moments and magic in the minutiae that make a scene great my name is colin drucker your name as always is barbara Balgetti's, and i am very happy to be back with another episode in the midst of this quarantine summer 2020 uh, whether you're listening to this now or you're listening to this later in some other non-quarantine season of our life, whenever this fucking thing is over. Oh, God. Um, I am so happy to be in your ear right now. Uh, so uh, where to begin? Uh, to the, just to give you a, a, a sense of, you know, what's coming this episode, this is kind of a mishmash of things I've wanted to talk about over the past few weeks. I've been working on this other project for this ep- for this podcast, and it's just not done yet. And I was like, well, I have all these other things I want to just at least briefly queen out about. So here is a little tapas, a little uh, buffet of nuances mostly discovered on YouTube, because YouTube is a treasure trove of obscure nuances. Uh, first things first, this isn't even terribly current at this point and may not be by the time you're listening to it, but it is worth saying a rest in peace, rest in power to In the Details alum and likely future nuancy nominee Olivia de Havilland, uh, who, of course, was the star of, among other things, Lady in a Cage, which I did a whole episode about called I Am Trapped in a Small in small Private Elevator. There's no A in that. Um, and if you want to know why, you just listen to the episode. It's apparently just line delivery. But anyway, um, yeah, Olivia de Havilland died at the age of 104. So not a bad run, Liv. Not a bad run. And um, I just thought it was worth acknowledging. I mean, you know, uh, it had to happen at some point. And the fact that she was uh, so nuanced uh, and worthy of her own episode and in the details, I'd be remiss if I didn't just give her a little mention at the opening of the episode here. So if you do want to memorialize her in your own nuanced, detailsy kind of way, you can go back and listen to I Am Trapped in Small Private Elevator. Which I recorded at like the beginning of the pandemic when I feel like there was a slight sense of hope that we were really just going to go through like two minutes, two minutes, oh, talk about hopeful, <laughs> two months of lockdown and uh, would somehow be, you know, back to normal by July. But I don't know what normal is anymore. So, uh, so that out of the way, I also feel like I would be remiss to not talk about my new favorite thing. Which is, of course, and I may be catching up with a lot of the world, but that's usually how it goes with these things. But the Netflix show Dead to Me. I, it's, you know, it's one of those things where I don't know why I didn't watch it sooner. Uh, It is 90% women on screen at all times. It's pretty much a uh, protracted meditation on grief. And I do love grief and protracted things um and it is oh god it's just so good there's so much talking through tears and i am just bowled over by christina applegate i mean she and linda carlini are both really great in it like i think linda carlini's character of judy is i'm about halfway through the second season so i've still even got a little bit to go but i'll probably be done by that by tonight um 
but her character of Judy, you kind of realize over time, like, wow, there's so much of this. I didn't realize how much you were playing a very intricately created character. And it's really impressive work. And I had not really been super familiar with Linda Cardellini. For some reason, whenever I think of her, I think of Scooby-Doo and the fact that she played Velma. And I never even saw that movie. And I never will. So uh, I apologize to her for that because I'm sure she's got much better credits under her name, including Dead to Me. So uh, she and Christina Applegate were both nominated for Emmys this year and much deservedly. I will say if I was an Emmy voter and if for some silly reason I wasn't voting for Catherine O'Hara in Schitt's Creek, who is also finally nominated and this may be her year, uh, I would be voting for Christina Applegate because I have never seen her this good i i will dare say that she is at moments giving me tony collette in hereditary levels of going to a 27 she cries almost every episode is often just you know eyes red rimmed with tears she talks through tears like oh my god like she was trained in it by stanislavski himself i don't know if he specialized in that but it seems like something she's just really fucking good at and i guess all my repeated viewings of don't tell mom the babysitter's dead really just didn't reveal that to me in full it's she does this thing that i guess if you've seen the show you you would know what i'm talking about and if you haven't you, you know let this be an entry point is that she'll she'll let the tears cut her off. Like she'll kind of like her voice will sort of, she'll like lose her voice in the middle of a sentence when she's starting to cry. And then she'll kind of like, you know, pick it up again. Like, you know, it's, it's hard to explain. And I, um, I probably shouldn't have even bothered bringing it up, but uh, it's, she is so good at talking through tears. And so I guess I say all of that to say that if you've seen the show, you're hopefully nodding along, pointing, doing that Nina Bonita Brown gif at the season nine reunion and agreeing. And if you haven't seen it and you're a fan of In the Details, then I know, I know deep down in my soul that you are going to love this, if anything, for this nuance, for this acting choice. I, I'm just bowled over by her. So all this to say that, like, I did look at the cast list and it may be coming up soon in my viewing, but apparently Francis Conroy's in it. Are you kidding me? Oh, my God. So anyway, I'm sure I'll have more to say about Dead to Me, but I just needed to talk about it today because it's I binged it pretty much all weekend because what else am I doing I did give my apartment a good Swiffer but that's about 25 minutes of the day so it like 47 hours and 35 minutes left to fill um but anyway so I just needed to mention that now I also feel like and maybe there will be an in the details episode in full about this but I need to also mention a long-standing favorite of mine, which of course is the HBO documentary Living Dolls, uh, which I think is from 2000, maybe 2001. It's around that era. And when you watch it, like when I saw it, I was like, oh, this is like 97, right? Like, please, like this is, it, it's crazy to me that there are things in the in this century, in the 2000s that feel that old, but it is 20 years ago. But it's, it's very hard to track down. Um, and it's, it's a shame because while it is kind of like, a pretty sick view into like child beauty pageants and just like, it's the classic story that I think toddlers and tiaras really capitalized on that. These parents are really these, you know, mostly the mothers in these cases are these crazy stage parents that are mostly living out their own fantasies and making up for their own inadequacies by dressing up their four year old to, you know, look like an 18 year old, you know, on spring break. It's, but like what's great about living dolls is like, 
the way that it's done, you're meant to capture that nuance. You're meant to see that these kids are kind of miserable and you're meant to see that it's all kind of sick and it doesn't glorify any of it. And I think that's important. So I found it on YouTube and I'm going to put a link in the description here because it's it's not like named Living Dolls. I think it's just like LD part one. It's, it's a, you know, 10 part playlist that some kind soul posted on YouTube and HBO hasn't found and taken down. I mean, if they want to put it on HBO Max, they certainly can. And then I'll stop using the YouTube channel. But what do you want from me? Um, it's so good. I mean, if you are not familiar with the, I, I think, cult figure of Swan Bruner, kind of tragic. She's okay. I think she's out of the pageant world now and, like, living in Alaska and doing all right. So it's it's more of just, like, you know, she had this this crazy, like, ashtray of a mother, Robin, who, like, died of a heart attack not long either before or after the documentary was released. And so the fact that, like, this mother who's, like, this major figure in the um, in the documentary then ends up dying, you're like, oh, my. Like, not long after all of that that we're seeing happen, you know, happens. Like, it's all, like, you can imagine Swan Bruner that age, all of a sudden, you know, her mother's dead, you know, and she, I think, moves up to Alaska at that point to be with her father, and then her father dies. But for anyone who has seen Living Dolls, rest assured, she and her younger brother ended up moving in with her ste- her half-sister, stepsister, Silva, who, in the documentary, seems to be maybe the most level-headed of all of the folks that we meet in Living Dolls, so that made me feel good, and I think she's turned out fine. Now, that also led me to Painted Babies, which is another documentary. It's a little bit easier to find, certainly on YouTube. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Painted Babies, it's very similar. It's like if you love Living Dolls, you're going to love Painted Babies. And it's, oh, my God. Oh, I have so much to say about these that I I don't want to queen out this whole episode on child beauty pageants. It's a little off-brand, but whatever. But you have to see it. If If anything, you need to know the uh, the sim icon I don't know another cult figure what can I say of 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 Brooke Breedwell and also her major competition Asia Mansoor oh these little girls are I mean drag race snatch game characters waiting to happen now the great thing about Painted Babies the the slightly less tragic side of Painted Babies is that they ended up doing a follow up documentary like twelve years later and I I don't want to spoil it for you but everything's fine. But it is an interesting road where both girls go, and you really get a new lens on these crazy families that surround and kind of like, you know, uh, produce these girls as as child beauty pageant stars. So anyway, uh, those are all the things at the top of the show that I wanted to just queen out about. I found that everything else I ended up wanting to talk about this episode is around some fabulous soundtracks of Italian horror movies. And I know what you're saying. I came here for Painted Babies. I came here for Olivia de Havilland, and now you're throwing this at me. And I, I say, wait a minute. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Uh, now, if, you, if you've if you listened to uh, my episode on uh, spooky synths and soundtrack surprises, I one of my favorite nuances of a movie is the soundtrack, is a soundtrack that jumps out and, and that you notice and that is its own kind of character in the movie. I think a big part of that is because that was like I listened to a lot of soundtracks when I was in like high school. I was trying to find music that that I liked and music that, you know, appealed to me. And I knew what I wanted was like something dramatic, but like, like really dramatic. Like I needed music at a 27 and not like heavy metal music at a 27 and not quite opera, but a little of both. And I think 
horror movie soundtracks ended up being kind of the place for that. I mean, you know, you think of like, you don't even need to hear it, you know, but you think of the score from Psycho, you know, the shower scene, you know, score even, uh, and just how over the top that is and just how intense that is. And I was like, that's what I need. That's what speaks to me. Uh, my older brother used to listen to Metallica, and I feel like that probably spoke to whatever emotional response he needed from music. And so I think I just had like a a sort of more queer, <laughs> in all senses of the word, uh, version of that. And it's probably also because I watched a lot of disaster movies, you know, when I was a kid and I was obsessed with the Poseidon Adventure and Airport 77 starring a late Miss Olivia de Havilland um, that probably steered me in this direction as well, you know? So I realized that there was just a, a glut of them that I've had saved on playlists and in YouTube favorites that I thought, let me just share with you uh, some of my favorites. And they're not maybe what you expect. And I think that's what I love about them is some of, some of this sounds like music that would be produced today. Like, you could play the song and say, okay, is this is this some 1970s Italian composer or is this some, like, East Williamsburg, like, neo-prog rock vaporwave shit? No, no digs. I mean, that all sounds great, but I love that you can't really tell the difference. And I think that says a lot. Well, probably, you know, it's a lot of the music today is kind of referential to... Uh, this music so like of course they're going to draw inspiration but i think it also says a lot about the original music itself and just how timeless it was and how uh, ahead of its time it was um one of the ones i want to highlight first and then we're going to kind of go to like, a couple i want to highlight and then we have a bit of a theme towards the end but there is this there, i mean there's this series of of exploitation movies they're like the emmanuel movies and it's like emmanuel one of them one of them for example is emmanuel in america and we're actually going to be talking about the theme song from emmanuel in america we're not going to dive deep into the emmanuel franchise i don't really know much about it i have seen emmanuel in america and that's how i discovered the song and it's really trashy it's just it's what you expect it's a lot of like you know uh this attractive woman who's i think a secret agent or a private eye or whatever but she ends up having just a lot of sex um uses sex to get what she wants to find out information you know to investigate you know crazy situations and i know in emmanuel in america then there is some eventual subplot about like discovering a snuff film and then they show footage from it and it's like really disturbing and just like i don't know for anyone who's watching that for the sex i would have to say that's uh it's a boner killer i would have, i would hope um but anyway so the the composer for this movie was uh nico fedenko and he's like i seems to be like a major italian you know composer in general i'm not wildly well versed in him i've seen his name pop up before but i wanted to feature this song because it's i think if i had found it in high school i would have just queened out and i don't know how i would have found it Hopefully not by seeing Emmanuel in America when I was in high school, but let's be real. I saw a lot of fucked up shit when I was in high school because um, I, I probably told the story on this podcast somewhere before, but I used to rent like a ton of horror movies all the time when I was like, that was what I moved on from, from, you know, disaster movies was then like VHS horror movies. And so a lot of my cataloging from the ages of like 12 to 15 was just like tons of slashers and um, obscure movies and and you know that was where how I would find some of this stuff but 
never stumbled across Emmanuel in America, which is fine. But here is this. Here's a. The, let me just kind of set you up. Uh, I, maybe I'll play the whole thing. Where else you got to be? Um, we'll play a lot of it though. Uh, so here is a good chunk of the theme song from Emmanuel in America, and uh, yeah, enjoy. I'll be honest, I have no idea what the lyrics are exactly, and I really don't care. I, it, it's just, this this song is just so over the top. The, and what I love about it, and we're going to play sort of the end of it here, where it's like the, it, the song just like can't, th- this is a theme of a lot of the music we're going to talk about today. It's like music that, like, some of these songs just like can't get their shit together in the best way. It's just wringing it out the rag, Tony Collette and hereditary it all the way to the end. And so I'm going to play the last part here. It may seem a little repetitive, but what I love is it just seems to keep mounting and mounting. And um, that's not really an Emmanuel in America joke, but you can make it one if you want. Anyway, here is the rest of Emmanuel in America's theme song by Nico Fidenko. opposite end of the spectrum though is the main theme from and go with me here because this title is certainly not you know uh <laughs> it's a little much but it is the uh infamous classic cannibal holocaust which uh is i don't really think is worth seeing it's got apparently some real um animal abuse situations and it's really violent and you know the only reason i think is worth seeing is if you're a big fan of found footage movies it's considered one of the pioneer movies to feature the the found footage trope but 
as kind of fucked up as this movie is, the main theme song by Riz Ortolani, it plays sort of this really unexpected parallel note of being very calm and very chill. If you didn't know it was the main theme from a movie called Cannibal Holocaust, you might think it's from something much more serene. And I think that juxtaposition is just so effective. And um, even not seeing the movie, I feel like it's, I was reading the comments uh, on one of the clips I found on YouTube of this, and someone was saying like, this is, um, great sort of montage music for like the apocalyptic end of the United States. But, you know, okay, sure, not to be political about it, but uh, but just in general, I think there is something, I think it's the juxtaposition thing that is so interesting about this is that a movie could be so violent or, or uh, you know, apocalyptic, um, but could have such like a chill theme that actually makes it all seem even more insidious. So here's a bit of that, you know, imagine the worst thing possible set to this music. <laughs> you know, what a great way to spend your day. set of soundtracks is all from uh, movies by Dario Argento, who, of course, is the director of Suspiria, the original Suspiria, and um, I mean, I think that's my, like, his most well-known movie, is really Suspiria, but there's also Tenebrae, there's also, they're actually all on the list, so let's just get into it. Um, so he often worked with this Italian rock band, rock band, whose grandmother am I, whose out-of-touch aunt am I hoping to be, uh, called Goblin who I, in my journey searching for music that I liked in high school, I eventually found Goblin, and I found Goblin soundtracks. And I am kind of horrified to admit the story that at some point in high school, probably in like freshman or sophomore year, maybe probably freshman year, um, in one of my classes we had to do, um, I don't remember the theme, but it was like we did a book report or you know a presentation on... Um, on a band or a piece of music or a composer. Um, and maybe it was more, maybe we had larger choices than that. But the point is that I decided to do my presentation on Goblin. And um, it's not quite the book report that I did in like sixth grade on Ace of Bass, where I drew the band in my, um, you know, I, I was I was no Renoir, you know, but I, I did my best uh, and I drew them and I put that on the cover of the book report. And I know I have it somewhere. And I'm I like I get the like humiliation watery eyes just thinking about it, <laughs> the shame tears um, for being so um, open about my um, not, you know, my my not cool interests as a teenager. But I, I remember I did a presentation on Goblin and it involved bringing a boombox to school, which I then because it only had a tape player on it, I then also had to bring my my Sony Discman with the anti-skip protection. 
and I had to use my tape adapter that you you plug into the headphone jack, and then it's like a cassette that you if you don't if you're if you're not familiar, you may be very familiar with what I'm talking about. Uh, that you then put into the boombox that I probably had like 800 C batteries in, so that I could use it unplugged, or maybe I plugged it in. I don't know. Um, who has that many C batteries? You know. And um, definitely played some of this music for my all-boys Catholic high school um, English class in freshman year. And I, I look back now and I wipe away those shame tears because I think here I am educating you heathens on, on this is what music is, you know? They didn't need, I mean, who knows? One of those kids could have been like, wow, I never would have heard of this. And that little probably gay boy taught me something today. Probably. They knew. And so I have always loved Goblin. And I think this is music that, honestly, it, you could create it today. You could tell someone it was it was done, you know, recorded a year ago, and no one would blink an eye. And I think a great example is one of Dario Argento's earliest movies, uh, Deep Red, which is really kind of probably his first, like, big movie that, you know, had a lot of his signature style in it. And uh, I what I love most about this theme song is just like how it starts. It, there's just this audacity to how it starts. It's just so like, it's so fucking ballsy. And it's just like, I don't know. I I feel like this music today. It's like it makes a dramatic entrance. It's I don't know for some reason all I'm picturing is like Romy and Michelle at their high school reunion making an entrance. And there's really I mean talk about a weird you know juxtaposition. But uh, I do love that idea that they're entering to this music. But I think like. Starting a movie with this, I mean, it's just, it lets you know right away that, like, someone knows what they're doing, and, like, you need to just, like, shut up and watch. And I don't know. That's what I take away. So I'm just going to play uh, the opening bits of the main theme from Deep Red, or if you are Italian or speak Italian or prefer original titles, Profundo Rosso, and I apologize for that already. Anyway, here you go. Skipping ahead somewhat chronologically, and don't worry, I'll go back. Um, there's kind of a there's a build up to the best one, and you probably you probably know what I'm going to queen out about most. But let's just like suspend our disbelief for a second. Um, the The score for the movie Tenebrae, which came out in the early '80s, and I've talked about once before on this podcast because it is one of the um, five bonkers movie endings. God, the ending to Tenebrae is just bananas. And if you want to know what it is, you should go back and listen to that episode. But um, the score is actually the score is actually done by um, three of the members of Goblin. They may have disbanded at that point. Um, so for all intents and purposes, it's it's mostly Goblin. 
And this is, again, where, like, right off the bat, the way it starts, I'm just like, Jesus Christ. Like, movies don't kick off with soundtracks like this anymore. It's, um, and it's a bummer because, like, it's so effective. And uh, obviously, obviously, right? Like, I wouldn't be here queening out about it if it wasn't. But I just think this is just so brilliant. Also, just just for a moment, just appreciate what I like to think of as this little like percussion dance beat moment. It's like Gloria Stefan would love this. Uh, it, that that happens about like a minute and a half in. I I don't know what else to say. It's just so good. I'm sorry. It's just so good. So I mentioned before music that can't get its shit together. And this to me is a quintessential example. Um, It's very reminiscent of Jerry Goldsmith's score for The Omen and the main title song and all that. You know, I think he won an Oscar for the song and was nominated for the score. And it's great. I mean, I'll just, you know, you might not know. So I'm going to play a little bit of the main, you know, theme now just so you have a point of reference. Then there is this song from Dario Argento's movie Inferno, which I have, this is a soundtrack I used to listen to constantly. That Sony Walkman with anti-skip protection got worn the fuck out listening to this soundtrack. And the best part of it is really like one of the last songs on the album. And having not seen the movie, it's it's kind of like Company, where I'd never seen Company, so I got to just imagine it as I listened to it. And I never wanted to kind of see it after a while because I didn't want to taint my memory of that um 
I mostly don't want to see Inferno because there's no like final girl. It's all like the, the main character is a dude and all the all the women in it die. So I'm like, what am I what am I going to watch that for? Why would I put myself through that? Why would I put anyone through that? But the score, Jesus. Now this is not Goblin. This is actually Keith Emerson from the band Emerson Lake and Palmer. And I got it this okay. This final number, uh, Mater Tenebrarum, is insane. And I I will play some of it. We'll talk for a second. I'll play the rest of it. We got to hear the whole thing. I'm telling you. This is a song that can't get its shit together. It's just so good. They just, oh my God, it is, it's, it's Tony Collette in Hereditary screaming on the bedroom floor. But what I want, what I want you to listen to at the end of this song is the, is there's that key change that happens where it's like, to me, the way I like to picture these things and listening to it on the bus in high school was like, this chorus is just like, Jesus Christ, enough. Like, (laughs) that's kind of what it sounds like. They, they are wringing out the rag. And I, again, what movie, what movie do you know of recently that has, that has scored itself quite so intensely um or been scored you know the movie is obviously a collaborative effort anyway um here here's the rest of it with this like this incredibly dramatic finale that i mean i you know i i take back any of the shame i had about loving this music in high school no matter who heard it because like this is some cool shit and i'm glad that i figured it out early on there's a lot of other shit i didn't figure out there's a lot of other things i have no taste in but like i stand proud with this proudly
course, in terms of horror movie soundtracks and um, gold standards, really the queen, the queen of all of these is the soundtrack from Suspiria, the original Suspiria. Now, granted, we'll talk about the remake in a second. I'd be remiss if I didn't. But um, <clears throat> this is, I mean, of course, one of the most amazing things about this movie is this soundtrack. It is so brilliant. And it's it's just like the other Goblin scores where it just like immediately starts and you're like, who the fuck are you? Like, it just is so cool. Let's Let's listen to some of this main theme from Suspiria so you can know what I'm talking about. just so brilliant it i i could go on and on if i had any way of speaking about music in an intelligent way other than just saying oh this is so good but i mean isn't that kind of the thing it's like music it, it's it's equally important how it makes you feel and like you know maybe you shouldn't dissect something too much and else it loses kind of its magic i i think what I, I remember hearing this in high school i remember i don't remember what the situation was maybe it was just seeing the movie and just being blown away that something had finally hit all of the notes I was looking for. I, you know, trying to find that drama and that intensity, but also like that sense of, you know, narrative in a way. There's sort of like the music doesn't just sound like a song that was put into a movie, but it also doesn't just sound like something, music that's scoring a scene. I love that they 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 met in the middle somehow. And, um, and I also, I just, I love that it was like creepy, but also kind of beautiful and melodic, but also ominous. Like it just... I, I cannot believe how fucking good this soundtrack is. Now, I'd mentioned this with Tenebrae, and I would be, I always say I would be remiss, but I would be remiss if I didn't also mention this other track. It's the second track on the soundtrack, um, appropriately titled Witch. But it's much like Tenebrae, it is, uh, 
it is just a percussion, you know, dance break. It's it doesn't sound anything like Gloria Stefan, but when I think of percussion and dance breaks, for some reason I think of Gloria Stefan and um, of course the Miami Sound Machine uh, in tandem. So I have to play this because it is just it is such an interesting use of percussion, and it it feels like there's like someone banging on every wall around you. I'd have to imagine with like maybe like this on vinyl with like really good headphones, not to be too hipstery about it because I don't have a record player or really good headphones, but if I did, um, this would be an amazing experience. So I let me play that for you as well in case you want to dance it out for a minute. I I could heartily recommend from every angle is of course the 2018 2018 2018 you can say it either way right will the judges accept either way I'm sure they will uh of Suspiria which of course I have talked about probably a bit on this podcast before and also I talked about on Gaylords of Darkness which is you know also sort of a stand podcast for Suspiria um while still of course being uh one of my favorite podcasts still they are just gold standard i cannot recommend enough gay lords of darkness stacy and anthony are i mean just knocking it out of the park they did a fundraiser recently called the three inning where every day of the week they released an episode on uh the third movie in a in a series like nightmare on elm street three or friday the 13th the third the third three i don't know um and it was Oh my god! And it was just so good. It was like to have a whole week of them was so good. And then they just spent all of July covering disaster movies, which, you know, as I've mentioned before, a childhood obsession. So, if you're a fan of them, go leave them some love on iTunes. Tell them Large Marge sent you. Um, if you haven't listened to them, I like you could jump in and listen to my episode with them, which was all about Suspiria. It was, I think, a um, a hefty bag full of baby arms. I think is what it's called. But my name is in the title, so you'll find it. They're so great. And Stacy was on this podcast. She we we did Rosemary's Neighbor all about uh, Ruth Gordon and Rosemary's Baby. So like 
you have so many reasons to be queening out on them as well. But uh, what I, the reason I, I bring all of this up is, is to actually say that while the soundtrack situation for the remake of Suspiria is different, which of course is done by Tom York of Radiohead, I do think that his song Volk, which is like the, the main dance theme, is, um, is incredible. And I think in its own way, without trying to copy Goblin or trying to, um, you know, re-spark that magic, it's doing its own thing, but with the same elements. It's melodic, it's haunting, it's dramatic, it, it feels like its own thing, but it also very much is scoring something. It's actually the music that these people are dancing to in the movie. Um, it's really incredible. And so I feel like Suspiria had some big shoes to fill, you know, when it was announced as a remake. And I think as a story and acting wise, and in so many ways, it's a superior film to the original. Um, but I, to me, it was like, well, <clears throat> you know, how are you going to do Suspiria without the soundtrack? And I think, uh, I think in this case, Tom York really found a way to put his own stamp on, uh, on this. So I, I feature that, you know, because, you know, I'd be remiss if I didn't. So here's a bit of Volk for you. Volks. seen Suspiria. See Suspiria. Oh, it's just so good. I know I've said that multiple times this episode, but I guess I'm just trying to keep a positive attitude as we soar into month 8,000 of, of quarantine, and uh, I'm, I'm blurring the lines of, of what a shut-in is and just what a normal functioning human being is these days quite well, so uh, looking for the gold where I can. But anyway, I think that's actually all I have to queen out about today. Thank you for going down this path hopefully you've discovered something new uh or just had a really fun little you know compilation of music to walk to drive to sit around and do nothing to i don't know i don't know what you do when you listen to this podcast um but maybe you get inspired to share other things that you want me to queen out about or you just want to say hi and uh the best way to do either of those things is to drop me an email at in the details pod at gmail.com you can also follow me on twitter at colin drucker you can find me on instagram at colin drucker underscore you can find me on best supporting podcast with nick queening out about best supporting actresses i think he's going to join me again soon here for another episode we're going to team up on uh he's of course been a frequent guest so happy to have him back and of course you can still find me in all right mary every week talking about drag race or drag in one form or another and um 
I guess that's it. So thank you for for joining me for this celebration of Olivia de Havilland, Christina Applegate, uh, and soundtracks to movies like Cannibal Holocaust. Um, it's uh, it's been a pleasure, and we'll talk real soon. All right, bye. I'm staying.